you may have heard college football's back. Would somebody help me preach? I was so excited. I know last week you had Notre Dame and Navy playing over in Ireland. That was kind of cool. Week zero, they called that. But yesterday, a full slate of games on. Now, getting to do what I get to do for a living as a calling, Saturday is a work day for me. But, but, I love, one of the things that I love is carving out a little bit of time on Saturday morning for ESPN's college game day. How many college game day fans do we have here in the house? I love it. Desmond Howard, Kurt Herbstreet, Reese Davis, and of course, of course, course, <laughs> course, Coach Lee Corso. Now, Coach Corso has been doing this for more than a minute. He was actually a, a, an NCAA football coach. He coached at Louisville, he coached at Indiana, he coached at Northern Illinois. But before that, back before Moses was a baby, back in the 50s, Lee Corso actually played the game at Florida State. Lee Corso was a Florida State Seminole. Is that crazy? Now, some of you may not know this little piece of trivia. If you've watched College Game Day, you probably do. Lee had a teammate on that team in the 50s at Florida State that you may have heard of a guy by the name of Burt Reynolds. Is that funny? It's a long way from that to eastbound and down and smoking into bandit. That's all I'm saying. But Lee Corso has become an icon in college football, primarily not because of his playing days, not because of his coaching days, but because of Lee Corso's famous picks on college game day. Now, every weekend, ESPN picks a location from which they will broadcast that show every single Saturday during the football season. And at the end of the show, they'll have a celebrity picker who has a connection to that team where they're playing or that location. And they'll come in and they'll run through a slate of the games that are scheduled for that day. They'll make their picks about who's going to win, what game, and why. But the whole morning culminates with Coach Lee Corso's pick of the day. Now, a lot of you I know have seen this. You know what happens at Lee's pick of the day. But rather than describe it, I thought I would just show you very quickly a little video montage of how Lee announces his pick of the week. Check this out. Coach Corso making his pick of the week. It happens every single week. It's kind of a fun little add to the show. But, you know, I, I started thinking about that. And if it, Coach Corso makes these picks based on a lifetime in football, based on where teams are, and, and he's actually got a 66.4% correct percentage in picking winners. And back in 1999, he went 100%. The whole season got him all right. But then in 2003, he was at about 31%. Ouch. So that brings you to the average of about 66%, give or take. 
That's just kind of how it works. But if Coach Corso is wrong when he's trying to pick a winner, who cares? It doesn't even matter because there'll be two teams on the field. They'll settle it. Now college football cannot end in a tie. And so somebody will win that game, and if Lee is right or whether he's wrong, they're going to pick up and move on down the road to the next stop next week for college game day, and we move on down the road. When those teams collide, something will be decided. Whether Coach Corso is right or wrong really is just kind of a fun little add-on. It, it doesn't impact the game. It doesn't impact people's lives. It, it's just, let's have some fun and put on a silly hat. That, that's really, really what it comes down to. But you know, here in the real world, where the stakes are exponentially higher, when two worlds collide, something's got to give. Uh, really and truly, more specifically, when two worldviews collide, something's got to give. In this series that we started a few weeks ago, Normal is Overrated, we've been looking at the life of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were living in Babylonian captivity. Israelites, God's chosen people, living in captivity. And we started in chapter 1, and you saw a little bit of this undercurrent brewing and swirling around a little bit. But in Daniel chapter 2, the, the collision comes to a head. In Daniel chapter 2, you see the worldview of God's chosen people, Israel, colliding head on with their Babylonian captors, with the worldview of King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as a whole. And when this happens in Daniel's life, when it happens in our lives, when two worldviews collide, something's got to give. There's, there's something that has to happen. You can't just say, well, both of them are right, so let's just go along to get along and have a lovely day and have dinner. That doesn't work. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them, something's got to give. Something's got to give. Here, here's where Daniel chapter 2 begins. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, the king of Babylon, had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And they stood before the king. He said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. So Nebuchadnezzar, having grown up in Babylon, having a Babylonian worldview, a belief in multiple, myriad, little g gods, calls in the sorcerers, the enchanters, the magicians. Now, before you dismiss them as kind of, you know, witch doctors from a very primitive era, understand something that these men that he called into his court would have been the most educated men in the entire Babylonian empire. As a matter of fact, these magicians and astrologers would have been the ancestors about 600 years before the Magi who visited Jesus in Bethlehem. That's where they came from was Babylon. They came from the east. That's where they were located. These astrologers and magicians that Nebuchadnezzar called into his court, 
they would have been their ancestors. They would have been the ones who had gone before them. And they were highly, highly respected intellectuals of that day and age. But you see here, this, this Babylonian pagan worldview or belief system coming into direct conflict with Israel. Israel had one God, and Israel's God, who is our God, by the way, Israel's God is singularly sovereign. God is singularly sovereign, and he is relentlessly relational. He specifically called Israel into this covenant relationship with himself. And so you've got these colliding worldviews. Nebuchadnezzar calls on the magicians that he's used to. And he calls them in, and he does something really interesting. He doesn't tell them his dream and say, what does it mean? He says, you're so good, I want you to tell me what I dreamed. Then tell me what it means. Ruh-roh. Now, the, the narrative continues biblically, and, and the, the sorcerers and magicians in Nebuchadnezzar's court kind of start stalling for time. They, they start, you know, really heaping on the praise and buttering up old King Nebi. And they're like, you are so wise, king. If you would just tell us your dream, then we will tell you what it means. He goes, no, 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 no. I want you to tell me the dream. And this goes back and forth a few times until finally Nebuchadnezzar, as the ruler of the known world at that time, gets so put out with his astrologers and magicians that he says, you know what? Forget it. Kill all of them. That's just how they handled things back then. I don't recommend it, but I, I understand it. It's, he's like, just, just kill them all, all of the wise men, all of the astrologers. This includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just go kill them. And so the king's representative shows up to Daniel's doorstep and says, hey, Daniel, I've got some bad news. Today you die. And Daniel's like, whoa, 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 I didn't do anything. He's like, what, what's going on? Why did the king issue this harsh decree? And he tells him. And Daniel begins to pray. But I want us to spend just a little bit of time here. We, we said last week that God has wired up this world. God has wired us up to function best, to function according to some very, very particular principles and practices. And when we do that, when we function in those principles and those practices, Everything is better. We are drawn into close proximity with him, close proximity with his power and his peace, with his grace and his truth. And you see this again playing out here in Daniel chapter 2 because you've got these two colliding worldviews that are absolutely incompatible. And it's important, I think, for us to understand that it's, you, you can't reconcile opposing worldviews. And so the principle here, the practice here, if you look at what Nebuchadnezzar did, if you look at how Daniel responds, we're going to get into in just a minute. The practice is this. Choose your sources carefully. Choose your sources carefully. Be very, very, very careful about who you listen to be very, very careful about how you make decisions, how you decide, how you think, and what you think about. The book of Proverbs tells us, above 
all else. Say everything. everything. Above everything, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, we know that's true, don't we? Now, I, I, let me tell you, let me just, I won't say this about you. I like to believe that I am just super, super rational, that all of my decisions are made based on, the, based on pros and cons, and I have scientifically examined them and then made the best decision to move forward in my rational mind. And, and to be sure, we're capable of that. But isn't it really true that most of our deciding begins in our heart? Most of our deciding begins in our, in our, in our gut, in our feeler. And so when Proverbs says to guard your heart, some translations say, guard your heart with all diligence. That means work hard to protect what you take into your heart and your mind. Some say with vigilance, to be vigilant. That means you are always on guard about what you're bringing in and taking in. With all vigilance means that you don't let up on what you let in. Don't let up on what you let in. Tell your neighbor like you mean it and you really care about them. Don't let up. Don't let up on what you let in. You see, every belief system, every worldview, every religion is a claim to truth. Even atheism is a claim to truth. If you are an atheist and you don't believe that there's any God, then that means by definition you think that people like me who believe there is a God who is singularly sovereign and relentlessly relational, you think I'm wrong, and that's fine. That, that's okay, but yours is a claim to truth like mine is a claim to truth. All claims to truth, all belief systems are by definition exclusive to other belief systems. For example, we believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? Well, if you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5, sorry, but that's different. They can't both be real. They cannot both be true. Let, let, let's use an example that is maybe less emotional. Let's say that you believe, that you've decided, you believe that the Dallas Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year. Okay, what that means is you have decided through careful analysis of the Cowboys roster, coaching staff, as it relates to other teams in the NFL, and that you have suspended all rational thought and intellect. I'm just kidding, sort of. That you believe the Cowboys are going to win. That means by definition, you believe that no other team will win the Super Bowl this year. And now, next February, we, we will have a winner declared to the NFL. We will find out if you were right. But at this moment, you are staking your football reputation on the decision to say the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. That is a claim to truth. That is an exclusive proposition. And that's fine. You, you can make that one if you want to, but that means by definition you cannot think that the Jets will also win the Super Bowl. That they're mutually exclusive. This is, this is actually just simple logic and rhetoric, but it's a simple logic and rhetoric that our world has abandoned. The dominant 
philosophical bent or worldview of our world and our culture today is relativism. Relativism is itself an exclusive claim to truth. Relativism says that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Nobody can know what is actually true, what is really true. So your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And I do understand where that comes from. I, I, I Personally, it kind of strikes me at first glance without scratching below the surface as something that kind of sounds acceptable. The only problem with this is that relativism as a philosophical bent or worldview, it is a philosophical and rhetorical system that cannot support its own weight. It's a, it's a philosophical black hole that implodes on itself because if you believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth, that is a statement of absolute truth. How can you, how can you know that unless you know everything? And I, I don't think any of us would dare to say that we know it all. Some of us act like it, but I don't think we would say it. So we have to understand that where we go for truth, the sources that we let into our lives, our hearts, and our minds affect everything that we do, everything that we believe, everything that we think, everything that we say. So we have to choose our sources so, so carefully, so carefully. We need to protect and guard our hearts. Look at something that Jesus said in John chapter 17. In John 17, again, Jesus is approaching the cross. He's praying for his followers and those who would come after them. And look at what he says in this prayer. He says, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, Jesus said. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus, Jesus puts a really fine point on it here. He says, you've got the world and you've got Jesus. The, the word of God made flesh. Jesus said, if we follow him, if we live like we believe the word of God, then the world will hate us. Now, notice he did not say, give them a reason to hate you because you're a jerk. Don't, don't be a weird Christian. And if you are a weird Christian, please don't tell anybody you go to church here. <laughs> Jesus said, just by living your life according to Scripture, just, just by living your life like you really believe what this book says, the world will hate you. And we don't, we don't celebrate that. We don't go out trying to make people hate us. But we have to understand that's the game. 
when two worlds collide, something's got to give. And if my life, if your life looks exactly the same as the world around us, something's not right. We're supposed to live. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to act differently. Why? Because normal is overrated. Because Jesus Christ has called us to live out the truth, to live in the truth, and to be comfortable with it, to, to live in it, and to live it out. But we're not through with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego yet. The decree has gone out, kill everybody. They can't tell me the dream. I want new ones. Then Daniel, this is verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's their Hebrew names, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Now, there's two things going on here. They, they have absolutely understood that they need to choose their sources carefully. But here, they come together and they start praying. And the first thing that they do is they acknowledge God's authority over reality. Acknowledge God's authority over reality. I don't get to determine what's true and false. I don't get to determine what's real or made up. God does. By virtue of the fact that he is singularly sovereign, that he is large and in charge. And so if we're going to live in this truth, if we're going to live this truth out, we begin with understanding he is the author of all reality. He's the author of all truth. So that means the more we get to know him, the more we love him, the more we get to know his word, the closer we come to understanding, to knowing and understanding what is true and what is real. Because there is a lot of noise and clutter and static in the world that we live in. None of it is new, but it is all louder. And so we have to start with this place that God is the author of all reality. He has authority over reality. And then number two, or the second part of this, which is number three on your outline, ask God for insight. Ask God for insight. The book of James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who freely gives every good and perfect gift from heaven above. Ask God. And I'm not being, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm certainly capable of it, but in this moment, I'm not being sarcastic. How many of us this past week, just in the last seven days, could have used more wisdom than we had on hand or on board at any given moment. Can I just see a show of hands? Every parent in the room should have your hands up. Even if your kids have moved out like mine. <laughs> we all need help. We need insight that we can't generate on our own. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to God. They ask God for that insight. 
And then God supernaturally reveals to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He tells him what happened. And so Daniel goes back to the king's representative and says, I want to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. I know the dream. And here's what Daniel says to old King Nebi. Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. And now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. That is bold. He's talking to the most powerful person on the planet who, by the way, just within, we don't know, days, maybe hours, has issued a decree for his execution. And he says, because of God in heaven, I will tell you what you dreamed and I will tell you what it means. Number four, tell the truth. As a follower of Christ, as one who worships this God in heaven, tell the truth. And, not but, and tell the truth respectfully. Tell the truth respectfully. You can say the right thing the wrong way. How many of us are parents? Let me just see a show of hands if you're a mom or a dad in the room. Have you ever gotten so mad at your child that you snapped and you, you were right to be angry but you said something you shouldn't have said. Anybody? I did that one time. I'll never forget it. <laughs> it happens. When you're handling the truth of God, make sure that you reflect the character of God, the heart of God. Tell the truth, but be respectful about it. That's one of the reasons I so respect Pastor Tim Keller, who recently passed away. Tim Keller was a brilliant theologian, pastor, brilliant mind, and he loved people. He loved people so much that he wouldn't just let them off the hook with their own worldview gaps. He was always respectful, but he always told the truth. Tell the truth respectfully. 1 Peter 3. This is one of those passages that ought to be an anchor verse in every one of our lives. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We all need to be able to share our faith, to tell why we believe in this Jesus. But we need to do it with gentleness and respect. Do you understand the opportunity that we have? Our world has thrown gentleness and respect out the window. You and I show up and we speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. People don't, their little, their heads will spin. They're not going to know what to do with that. But they'll listen. If you're a jerk, if you're sarcastic, if you're mean about it, nobody's listening to that. 
I agree with you, and I don't want to listen to it. So tell the truth respectfully. And then number five, stand firm on the word of God. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar his dream. He said, you had a dream of a, of a great statue. The head was made of gold. The, the arms and chest were made of silver. The belly and the thighs were made of bronze. The lower legs were made of iron. And the feet were a mixture of, of clay and iron. This is where we get the term feet of clay. Everything was great up to that, but the foundation was rotten. And then there was a rock carved out of a great mountain that crushed the feet of the statue, and the statue fell and crumbled to a thousand pieces, and he went on to tell him, this is representative of what will happen to your kingdom after you're gone. He spoke the truth to him, but he did it respectfully, and he stood firm on the word of God. Look at what King Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. You don't have to back up to anybody with a Christian worldview. If you believe the word of God, don't back up. Be kind, be respectful, but stand firm on the word of God. It works. As a matter of fact, it works better philosophically, intellectually than any worldview out there. It is the one worldview that holds together. It is cohesive because it begins with God. It begins with God. And so in Daniel, we have this example of how you live in the principles and the practices of God and you live in the presence and the power and the peace of God. I can't imagine that Daniel went in to see Nebuchadnezzar and wasn't at least a little nervous. At least a little. Daniel lived 600 years before Jesus. But he stood firm on the word of God that he had learned to that point. And then 600 years later, these are the words of Jesus. John chapter 14 Verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You see, when two worlds collide, something's got to give. And Jesus gave himself. Jesus gave himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know truth. Now, we don't know it perfectly. There, there's, there's not a person not named Jesus who's ever walked the earth who understood and grasped all truth perfectly. But Jesus is the one. Jesus is the truth. Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came to be with us, God with us, Emmanuel. If you know Jesus, you know.
know the truth. The better you know Jesus, the more you know and follow his word, the more you know and follow truth, reality. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a second. I think it would be very, very easy to let this sermon, this conversation float out into the ether. But Jesus is the one who brings us back to the real world. In him, we have the example. We have the embodiment, the personification of truth and grace. If you're here today and you have never chosen to follow Christ, you've never decided, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. In this moment, if that's you, then just pray right where you are. Silently talk to God just from your heart to his and say, Jesus, I need you. I decide right now to follow you. In my heart and in my mind, I want to. And so I confess my sin to you in order to accept and receive for myself your grace, your forgiveness, and your truth, your word. And I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. that was your prayer, I want to ask you, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, I want you to know that as a church, we want to help with what comes next. This is just the beginning for you. And if you're here in the room, we, we have a, a new believers kit or packet that we would love to give you today. As you walk out into the big lobby out here, there's a place called the Hub, and you can just take that QR card that's in the seat back in front of you and give it to somebody and tell them, hey, I accepted Christ today and I would love the Bible, the reading plan, the whole thing. If you're online, you can let us know through your service host or through an email, however it works for you. We would just love to help with what comes next. And as our heads are bowed for just another moment, if that was your prayer, would you raise your hand? Just hold it up high in the air for just a moment. And know that as a family of faith with you, your hand in the air just means physically that you spiritually made a commitment. 
and as a family of faith with you, we celebrate that. As you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.